Welcome to Improv Interviews. Today I have a very special guest, indeed a true pioneer of improv who studied with many of the masters. I am so delighted that Aretha Sills turned me on to Ed Greenberg. And without further ado, I'm introducing Ed Greenberg. Hi there, Ed. Hello, Margot. It's so wonderful that you have the time to speak to me today. I'm a big fan. Thank you. Thank you. So I want to talk. Oh, sorry. I just said happy to be here. Great. Yeah. We're happy to be anywhere as long as we wake up in the morning and get out of bed. <laughs> That's a good start. <laughs> so there's so many fascinating facts about you, but you're a California boy, right? No. I'm oh. not. I, uh, you know, my, my father was in the uh, uh, career Air Force officer. And so I went to maybe 10 different elementary schools all over the world and landed in California around the middle of high school. And then I was essentially a California boy, except for journeys to Chicago, Rwanda, other places. Wow. Really interesting. So being in the 60s in San Francisco area and being at UC Berkeley was an incredible revolutionary time in our country, both politically, artistically, and you were in the mix of it, weren't you? Well, I was a student at Berkeley when Berkeley was really exploding. And, you know, there was the Vietnam War, which was, uh, you know, the issue. There was uh, civil rights was uh, front and center and uh, Black Panthers were, were based in Oakland, which is right next door to Berkeley. And then there was the San Francisco scene and, uh, and that was amazing. And then I went from Berkeley to North Beach in San Francisco where the committee was. So yeah, it was a happening time certainly was and i always think of like people like ginsburg and watts and all the great uh, philosophers and poets that came out at that time and the music now let's talk a little bit about the committee not all of my listeners might know what the committee is so tell us about the committee and how you ended up there so the committee was an improvisational theater it actually the founder of the committee um alan myerson came to San Francisco after directing from Second City in Chicago. So it was essentially, I guess you'd say an offshoot of Second City, but Alan wanted to do something that spoke to what was going on in the world. Um, he had more of a, uh, I guess you'd say a political bent and San Francisco seemed to be the perfect place. And there was, um, he was able to, to raise some money through a, uh, let's say, left-wing, uh, politically um, uh, liberal, progressive uh, San Francisco contingent of people who thought that it, political satire was, was right for, second, for, uh, for San Francisco. And the committee was born in North Beach, at a former bocce ball studio, or that was converted <laughs> into a into a theater, and it was in fact right across the street, almost right across the street 
from City Lights Bookstore, which was Lawrence Ferlinghetti's bookstore in the epicenter of the beatnik movement. So the North Beach scene of which the committee was a very vibrant part was uh, an amazing community at that point in time. Oh, I'm sure. So how did you stumble upon the committee? Well, you know, the committee was like for us Berkeley kids, the committee was like the hippest thing you could do is let's go <laughs> see the committee on Saturday night. And they were amazing and they were hilarious and smart and political. And, and uh, I would go sit there with my friends and we were all huge fans. It was so popular. And, and I would think to myself, you know, I think I can do that. <laughs> I said it to myself. I didn't want to, you know. Right, right. <laughs> so, I, so I was reading in the San Francisco Chronicle that Peter Bonners, one of the, you know, stellar actors at the committee, was doing a mime workshop. And you could sign up for it in whatever small amount of money it was. And I signed up for Peter's workshop. So... Peter's mime workshop was essentially Viola Spolin theater games taught by Peter, run by Peter, right? And Peter kept telling them, that was my introdu introduction to the games. Oh, yeah. And, and Peter kept telling me that I was, you know, I had a facility for them. I was very good at the games. And, and come six weeks later, whatever it was, I said to Peter as the workshop was ending, Listen, is there a place that I could do this, only talk at the same time? And he <laughs> said, well, well, Del Close, who directs the committee, runs workshops during the day. Come to the show tonight. I'll introduce you to Del, which he did. And Del invited me to a workshop the next day. And, uh, you know, I got on stage the next afternoon at the workshop. And I knew five minutes in, this guy... Del Close is one of the smartest, most interesting minds I've ever come across, you know? And I got on stage and I did this scene and Del had been like yelling at people all afternoon, get off that stage, you know, people <laughs> were trying to be funny. Right, right. You know, the number one sin, right? Don't try to be funny, just exactly. do it. Exactly. Uh, so Del stopped me halfway through this scene and I thought, oh, my God, this is it. Now it's my turn. And, and um, I, I said to Del, uh, did I blow it? And he smiled at me and he said, um, no, kid, you didn't blow it. And then he stopped and he said, you have a great sense of reality. Was his first, the first thing he ever said to me. And within side of a few weeks of coming to Del's workshops, he was telling me that um, if I wanted to be an actor, he would uh, get me into the company as soon as he could find a place for me. And that was how I got into the committee through Dell. Wow. Amazing yeah. and wonderful. Were you interested in drama at all prior to this? Well, you know, I always did show, like I say, I, w I would go to all these different schools and I'd have to sort of 
you know, as a, as a military kid, you kind of either fade into the woodwork because you're always the new kid or you do something. And so I sort of hone my personality and sometimes I would actually create shows and, you know, I sort of practiced it without knowing what it was. And then the committee was like, oh, this is what that was all about. So I can't hear you now, Margo. I'm sorry. So you were improvising on stage with the committee. Wow, I bet your friends, were they jumping all over the place and coming to visit you and see you? Oh yeah, it was a big deal. It yeah, that it was, I bet it was huge. Yeah, this kid who is like in my History 101 class is like in the committee now. <laughs> that is great. And, you know, from the committee, I know a little bit about the committee. A lot of, including yourself, great actors came out of the committee. And I think that I read somewhere that the movie Billy Jack was something that came through the um, the uh, committee as well. And that you were in that, of course. You, you have several film and acting credits. Yeah, yeah, there was, a, you know, the, the committee was very high profile and they heard about, and in fact, the committee opened up a branch at the Tiffany Theater in LA on Sunset Strip, which ran a couple of years. And I came down there and worked for a while. And so, you know, casting people would, people knew about the committee and Billy Jack and, a number of committee people were in American Graffiti, and I also was, and you know, just stuff, just different things would 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 appear, and uh, and then uh, yeah, and then the, just to bring up Peter again because I was thinking about it, Peter Bonners, who went on to be uh, you know. Uh, the dentist on the Bob Newhart show. Right, right. Terrific, a yeah. Phenomenal career as a TV director for, for many years. Um, but uh, Peter did, had been on uh, uh, in story theater with Paul Sills on Broadway and asked me to come down and be part of a program at the Mark Taper Forum, which was a story theater show that Peter was directing. And uh, anyway, I was just thinking about my first introduction to the, uh, what Aretha calls the family business. <laughs> kind of like the mob, huh? <laughs> yeah, and and so so I also did story theater. I would later worked with Paul, but that show we did with uh, Peter as the director was a, a phenomenal story theater show that traveled around the schools of Los Angeles and then did uh, a couple of weeks in residence at the Mark Taper forum. So that was an early introduction to, to that work. Now, not everybody knows about storybook theater. So could you give a little description and, you know, thoughts on okay. storybook theater? Yeah, well, st well uh, story theater was a form that uh, Paul Sills, Viola's son, and Aretha's uh, uh, father, 
um, created, from what I understand, I wasn't there then, in response to the Democratic Convention in 1968 in Chicago, which, you know, was uh, an insane, ultimately, police riots. Uh, and, you know, there was, it was demonstrations and it was a crazy thing. And yeah, I think, all, I think, I think Carol Sills had told me they were trying to get into the theater for shelter and they, they locked the doors. Yeah. And, but that was Paul's sort of like, how can we as a community uh, respond to what's going on politically out, outside of us? So then uh, Paul said, you know, and he started doing stories. Now you can, this is just my understanding and having spent some time with Paul and, and Carol in New York while working on the American Revolution, which later, which was another story theater style, but it basically was telling stories off the page and into the space. I think is a pretty accurate way where you, um, yeah, you, it, it was the use of the space to, so that the story emerges in real time in front of the audience. It, it was a wonderful form of theater. It yeah. is a wonderful form. It is. It gives me chills to hear about it. I know there there was a few um, videos made um, from Canada, I think, at one point. But let's go back because the, co uh, the committee also made records, didn't they? Yeah, the committee. Yeah, I got a couple in my bookcase behind me, in fact. And I can remember listening to records of the committee, uh, you know, as a young person back right. in the 60s. So, yeah, it was it was great. Uh, we also played because there's a guy who's just doing we We opened at the Caesars Palace in Vegas for blood, sweat and tears. Do you remember? Oh, my that God. Movie? Of course I do. Yeah. A blood, sweat and tears documentary now. So we've been kind of talking about the stories around the Vegas, the Vegas show. Um, but I can also tell you how I met Viola, which was. Yes. Through, through Dell. And Dell one day said, Viola's in town. You got to come meet her. That's how I, you know, got to meet a lot of these people. Severin Darden, and Avery, they were all pals of Dell and, you know, Dell was bringing me into the family. So we, we drove over to Sausalito where Viola was staying at somebody's place and she was doing something in town and, 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 um, I remember Dell and Viola, you know, and I was like kind of a fly on the wall. And she, she, Dell was racing all over the place. And Viola was very stern with him and made Dell calm down. She called him Delbert. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and insisted that Dell just kind of, you know, chill. And, and that was like, wow. <laughs> I've never seen anybody relate to Dell like this. So that was my introduction to Viola herself having played the games and heard, you know, 
tons of stories. So you had, had, she, had her, her book had been published by then, had it not? Uh, her book, I think originally, if I'm not mistaken, the first version was 1963, but Arif always says, make sure you get the third edition, 1999. That's the, that's the one. So yeah, it, the book had come out, is my understanding, I think. And so what happened when you met Viola? I mean, she is considered to me the mother of improv. I know there's other schools, but to me, Viola is the basis of improv, at least in this country, but all over the world, I think. So what was it like meeting her? First, she controls Delbert and gets him to calm down. Yeah. Well, Viola was, she always had that, um, you know, kind of uh, uh, the, she accepted and when I knew her, you know, she accepted the fact that she was the source and it was fine to approach her with that understanding. <laughs> that was my experience of Viola. And was she still teaching? Did you ever take a class with her or not? Um, when I worked with Viola directly, it was in LA, and there was a guy whose name was Stephen Book at that point, and, and, and Viola had entrusted Stephen with her, with her classes, and she would come in every now and then just to check in and run some games and clarify some issues, and we had an ongoing workshop uh, that Viola would oversee, but Stephen would really teach. And out of that workshop, boy, we just played the games from the very, from page one all the way through. Wow. And by the end of that workshop, working with a group of people, doing the games, beginning to end, we had become a really uh, solid improvisational unit oh i bet how fantastic it was great and there how was really good people in that workshop and you would know? she do would she do some side coaching even though somebody else was teaching she would do yeah. some side coaching yeah. yeah so um so then yeah that was that was my experience oh my gosh you know, how good, what good over the years at different things you know just events uh -huh. so. Wow, what ex exceedingly wonderful training that is. It's just blowing my mind because I am a Spolin aficionado and that's basically what I teach as well. This is just blowing my mind. It's just so fantastic. And um, so now when did you meet Paul? Okay, so... Um... I, uh, after I finished the committee, I took a year off and went to India and Nepal and just wanted a cool adventure, you know, something really changed the channel for a while. And when I came back, I heard that Paul was doing this show uh, as the bicentennial of the, the American Revolution, part one, commissioned by um, the Bicentennial Committee. Right, right. 
And we were going to open at Ford's Theater, rehearse in New York, go to Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C., with, you know, Lincoln was assassinated right up there on the, and, and then come back to New York. And I called Dell and I said, hey, Dell, I heard about this show. I would love to work with Paul Sills. And Dell said, yeah, get off the phone. Let me call you back in a few minutes. And he called me back, as I remember it, like 10 minutes later, he said, here's Paul's number, call him. And I called Paul and he hired me on the phone. Wow, how beautiful. Wow, that must have been really exciting for you too, I would imagine. Well, it was exciting. It was exciting to go to New York with a job and, and yes, a really yes. interesting job. And the company was uh, many of Paul's, and I was the kid in the company once again, and the company was Severin Darden and Dick Libertini and Tony Holland and all guys, not a single woman in the company, and John Brandt, who I knew from the committee, but some of Paul's real stellar players from the old days. And I spent, you know, months working with these guys and Paul, and it was just, you know, it was phenomenal. And I remember walking around the streets of New York with Paul and Carol and just, you know, it was great. I Unfortunately, it, the show did not, it was not well received and we never went back to New York. So that was a little disappointing, but still it was a wonderful. And Carol's an incredible person too, as an artist and the work she did with lighting. Um, so she's an important part of the story that, and I've been able to talk to her at least once so far, I'm very important, but what a thrill walking around Manhattan with the two brilliant geniuses that they were. I, I remember it so well. Yes, and Carol was, was uh, although doesn't have the high profile that Paul has, which parenthetically isn't high enough in my estimation. Paul yes, is, a lot of people say that about Paul Sills. A lot of people say that about Paul. Paul had a very particular way of uh, uh, directing that was uh, kind of, I don't know, there was something mystical about Paul and Dell was very different, but also there's something that you can't quite put your finger on that they evoked and that actors responded to. Yeah. Well, the, the late great Ed Asner made some wonderful comments about Paul and said, if he isn't considered the Zeus of American theater, I don't know who is. That yeah. is his no, work is so spectacular. Uh, Paul was uh, quite, quite uh, unique in my experience. What was Paul like? <laughs> uh, uh, which 15 minute period are we talking about? Um, Paul, was, <laughs> Paul was, you know, like, like, like um, again, I mean, they, they were very different people, but Paul was complicated and, and brilliant. And I listened to your, uh, your interview with Aretha and, you know, she was his kid, so she, she, you know, she really captured it, but um, 
I can tell you this, great improvisational actors would drop whatever they were doing to go work with Paul, you know? So and Paul was that, he had that magnetic quality as an artist to people wanted to work with Paul. Whatever Paul's doing, I'm in. Right. Now, you mentioned something a, a few minutes ago about having a paid job. And often actors and improvisers are gig workers. So did you do anything else in the meantime to help support your art? You know, from the time I got the job at the committee, I mean, I was a college student and then I was a member of Actors' Equity and doing 13 shows a night. and you know, I was getting paid. And then San Francisco also had a very interesting and successful um, voiceover acting. There was a place called Imagination Incorporated that used a lot of uh, committee people. And we actually did these like improvised commercials that the guys who ran Imagination Incorporated had a real gift for uh, turning them into something. And, and, and so we, we had jobs, you know, and then Hollywood and little movie parts, or they would come to San Francisco. So I was working as an actor. And then, um, and then I came down here and I had this voiceover reel from, from the jobs and imagination and got a, you know, it, it, for a while it was pretty easy there to just, you know, I never had to get another job. Like Wonderful. So many people do now. Yeah, oh no, it's, it's a, it was a blessing, you know. Wow, that's terrific. So let's go on and talk a little bit about, you know, you had this relationship with Dell and did you finally end up at Second City with him or tell me a little bit more about that? Okay, so, um, so I started doing some, some TV directing and directed uh, Robin and Mork and Mindy and, and a few things. Okay, I, didn't, I didn't see that in your creds. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So, and then, so I wanted to do that. And then, you know, uh, uh, I was, uh, it was George Went actually. Uh -huh. I was on the set of Cheers one day. And George said, uh, you know, uh, Dell was just fired at Second City. Dell had been directing for 10 years. He said, you should call Bernie, who was the owner of Second City. Bernie Solomons, yeah. Bernie Solomons. Well, I called Dell. And I said, Dale, what's going on? I was sure, he said, let me talk to Bernie, right? He had just been, Dale, Dale Braggs, he was the only person who was ever fired from a job and allowed to handpick his successor. <laughs> so Dale called Bernie and he said, you know, this guy, Ed Greenberg would like to come and so Bernie, so I was connected to Bernie and Bernie said, we'll come for a couple of weeks and direct and, and we'll see how it goes. And, and then I, yeah, so I got that job again through, with Dell's help. And can I ask what time period that was when you were directing it? This was like mid eighties, mid eighties. Yeah. Okay. So, um, 
so that was the second city period and and, and uh, that was that was of course great and that was as uh, as an improviser it was like hey second city you know now, when you say directing, were you teaching as well? I'm not sure. I don't understand. Right. Well, I was running workshops because they had the touring companies. Right. And I think Jeff was kind of just starting ETC, if I'm not. So there were these yes. other, you know, there were these other um, aspiring improvisers and other things going on. And so I ran workshops there. And I directed the main stage, and that was that was my job to do those two things. So I, uh, you know, not to name drop too much, but I bet there were some significant people who went on well, to great success. You know, um, it was a very strong company. Um, Richard Kind, uh, Rich Kind, I hired into the. Company. There was a very good company from Northwestern in the theater at that point. Second City now was the whole block, but at that point in the uh, in the space behind was um, I think they called themselves the Practical Theater Company or something, and it was Julia Louis Dreyfus and and Rich Kind and Brad Hall and. Uh, yeah, they were really good, and 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 Rich came into the company, and uh, Isabella Hoffman became a member of the company when when I was there. I, I I lobbied to have Isabella come in, and uh, Mike Haggerty was in our company, and Megan Fay was in our company, and. Uh, Lance Kinsey, Dan Castellaneta, yes, know, uh, yes. Dan was was around there and uh, became a member of the company um, at some point around that. So yeah, it was you know it was some very uh, very good improvisational talent, and it was a joy for you. How would you express your relationship with improv? Maybe, well, maybe, thing, and maybe even as a metaphor, Ed. <laughs> I always tell people that it's been so great to spend my entire life around funny people. You know, it doesn't get any better than that. And also, you know, all this yes and and the, the, the bringing, the connections that are made. I mean, that's, that's fundamental, foundational human stuff. Yeah. And that's the, the work we do is all about that. So that's how I feel about it. I, um, I just think improv has the possibility to help with social change as well. And uh, I, I love seeing when people and I, and I find I have quite a few improviser friends in this country and abroad, and I find that we're usually very politically attuned. We usually have the same kind of political beliefs. Yes. Yes, um, I, I don't, I'm not quite sure what that is, but yeah, most of us uh, seem to 
lean towards the left a little bit. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> or a lot, depending on. So the first time I went to uh, Second City was several years ago, and I did not realize so much of it was sketch comedy. And did you work in sketch comedy as well? Um, well, the committee was, before we called it sketch comedy, the committee was a, um, I believe we billed ourselves as a, uh, like, topical, improvisational, satirical review. And Second City is, is also a, a review form. It seems it's blackouts. Now, it's gotten to be more long form-ish. Right, right. Uh, but I also was in that first Herald, so I've seen the development. You were. Yeah, I was on the stage when I got the name Harold that day. And why is it called the Herald? It's called the Herald because we had been working on these experiments in, you know, having eight or ten or people on the stage and just going for an hour and seeing what would come up. And Dell had these different ideas of how to do it. And Bill Matthew, the piano player at the committee, and I believe the original Second City piano player, Bill is another you know, phenomenal uh, character in improvisational history and the music behind improvisation. Anyway, um, Bill was playing the piano, we were improvising, and we did this thing that just, all of a sudden there was this theater piece and Dale kind of at that point in the back of his mind had in mind being able to improvise a long form play. I mean, I heard that as a goal. Right. And this thing that afternoon in the workshop just, just worked, you know, it just totally worked. It just everything we were trying to do the muse landed that day. And Dell was, you know, almost literally bouncing off the walls. And he said, when you need a name for it, it's a new form of theater. And, and we're like, yeah, Dell, but he was right, ultimately. Um, and he said, we need a name for it. And Bill Matthew, the piano player, um, said almost to kind of undercut Dell, but in a loving sort of way, well, Harold's a nice name. <laughs> and everybody laughed. And Dell sort of grumbled and, and, you know. And then a few days later, I remember coming into the theater and Dell was saying, oh, you got to listen to this Frank Zappa thing that he's just come out with. It's a musical Harold, he said. And I said, oh, wow, it's okay with it. That's, that's the name, Dell's okay with it. Years later, Dell on a number of occasions apparently like bemoaned the fact that Harold was the name that stuck, but that was that story. Wow, that's incredible. Now, can you describe the Herald, because again, I reach people who some of them are improvisers, but a lot of them are not. And I know it's not an easy task during an interview like this, but could you kind of sketch out the Herald? Well, you know, it's at this point, it kind of breaks down into 
Um, you know, this is my story. Somebody else might, we could have a whole long conversation about this. Um, there's the structured Harold and the unstructured, right? So the structured Harold, what happened is that what we did in San Francisco evolved and Dell went and directed Second City for whatever it was, 10 years. And then when he met Sharna, he and Sharna worked on some stuff that took those experiments and ultimately came up with this Harold structure, right? And the Harold structure was uh, a game, three scenes, another game, those three scenes replayed in some way to further the story, another game, and then three more scenes, and that was the end of it. But it was this structure, you know, uh, game, three scenes, game. So that became sort of the basic Harold form that people learned at I.O. and whatnot. And, um, and then it was uh, all the different stuff that uh, came out of that, all the different variations. Mm -hmm. like, you know, once again, improvisation and jazz music, they're, uh, you know, they're, they're great metaphors for each other. Um, and uh, what Randy Dixon told me, which I heard from, from Randy, uh, not from Dell, was that Dell, at a certain point, teaching the classes at I.O. to keep his brain sort of, you know, uh, working so he wouldn't get bored. Every eight week class, he decided he would come up with a new form. That's what the class would be, creating a new uh, long form. So those were the structured hair. Right. Then there's the unstructured, which is, you know, initially we would take a question. I mean, I could go on and tell you what we did in those early days, but yeah, so there's, you know, and that's, and now people do a lot of what you see is like three teams, right? Teams is like a concept that when we started out, who knew there was second scene in Chicago, there was the committee in San Francisco. That was the improv scene globally, as far as I know. Um, and now it's like, you, you can't go any place where there isn't like some improv being done by some group of people in some little space. Absolutely, it's, yeah. it's incredible how global it has become, you know, from India to Singapore to South America. And um, I wanna ask you a bit more about, now we, your personal relationship with Dell, because you knew him for many years. And there was a documentary about Dell that came out recent, fairly recently, I think. Heather's, Heather Ross is the director. Yeah, are you talking, you're talking about, uh, it's called For Mad Men Only. The yes, Story. yes, yes. I haven't had a chance to see it yet. Have you seen it? I have seen it, I am in it. Oh, well now I have to see it, okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm interviewed in it, along with a number of Dell's other students. Yeah. And it, it, the documentary focuses 
um, it's sort of a, the window into Dell, who is an extremely, extremely complicated person. You know, um, some people loved him, some people didn't love him. Um, well, but, isn't, isn't that the case with brilliant artists? Seems to be, seems to be, yeah. The fire, the fire burns and, you know, it's, uh, Dell was once, Dell was once asked uh, uh, by in some, some interviewer, when you're working with a bunch of good improvisers, what is the director's job? And Dell's answer was, light, fuse, and run. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, getting back to Heather Ross's documentary for Mad Men Only, Dell in the mid eighties co-wrote a comic book called, um, God, can't believe I'm spacing on the name, but, um, and it was sort of his life story and, and the documentary sort of, you know, reaches, tells Dell's life story through, through the comic book. Uh, yeah, so anyway, yeah, so I have seen that documentary. I have, I participated in that documentary. I thought it was uh, pretty good. It's great. Now, um, did your friendship continue the rest of his life? Did you stay friends? I was with Dell when he died. Literally with him. In fact, Randy Dixon, I met Sharna placed me and Randy on either side of Dell's deathbed for a couple of days because hundreds I'm... of students and, you know, uh, protégés and whatnot were coming through the room and we were sort of the gatekeepers and Oh, I've seen a lot of the pictures, but now I have to go back because now I know you and I'll recognize you in the photos. Yeah, they did. Um, in, in typical Dell fashion, uh, the, the pre-wake birthday party. Dell died, I think, on like the nine, I don't, maybe the, the fourth and his birthday was on March seventh, mine's the eighth, and John Brantz was the ninth, or it's, wow. I forget, maybe it was John, me, Dell, but we would have these, you know, little parties. Um, yeah, so they, that, that was filmed by Comedy Central, and you can see a lot of that uh, celebration while Dell was still alive on YouTube. Right. Yeah. So there's all that stuff. So um, let's get back to let's get forward rather to more present times and your company or your um, education um, company, Laughter for Change. Let's talk about that. When did you start that, Ed? So so in uh, 2007, I was through certain circumstances a uh, cultural envoy from the Department of State to uh, go to, to Rwanda mm. to do, to teach comedy 
the the thought was there was a filmmaker, there is a filmmaker in Rwanda named Eric Kabira, and Eric had this idea that the way to help Rwanda out of the darkness of the the genocide that you know unspeakable horrible thing that happened to that country was to not just keep making documentaries about the genocide but to do comedies so i was brought over to run comedy workshops in rwanda with the basically the first generation after the genocide mm -hmm. getting back to viola i thought to myself as i was on my way to rwanda what am i going to do there you know we we americans were so in a way so provincial you know what's going on will there be bodies in the street or what you know what am i going to do and here's the thought i had i said well first of all i'll take some classic comedy dvds and i'll show them maybe i'll at least have them if it works out that way but i thought to myself i have the games right viola's games always work and I went there with a certain level of confidence that no matter what I encountered, I have the games. And as always, the games just, you know, opened up a window to these people being able to play and collaborate and create a show that was and three weeks after I got there and started doing mirror exercises with them or whatever, and showing Lucy in the chocolate factory. Right, right. It, yeah, yeah. It was like the hit of Kigali, you know, ambassadors <laughs> from the, the different embassies and all of the not notaries of, uh, and the uh, minister of culture who came to see our show and promised that they'd help create more comedy in Rwanda. So, so when I came back from that experience, I was uh, determined to continue doing that thing, yeah. basically yeah. the games, right? And that's how Laughter for a Change came about as a nonprofit, which I started to do programs with, you know, uh, former gang bangers who were have the opportunity to turn their lives around and vets with PTSD, you know, serious PTSD from right, right. wars and uh, high school kids. We created a anti-bullying improv sketch, you know. Oh, wonderful! Yeah, and and that was uh, that was a wonderful experience and. You know, just all these different projects, many of it. And then I went to China and worked with uh, uh, the cast of, of the number one hit comedy TV show on China Central Television. It was called China Central Television. And that. So we're talking about like a billion viewers, right? <laughs> and here was this group of, of young people who, when I presented to them the idea that um, success came through collaboration, 
in the way we do do uh, comedy. It's not a competition, it's a collaboration. And then we played some games and it was like a revelatory, you know? And uh, yeah, so, so these different experiences where everybody gets it, you know? Everybody gets it, it's just the experience, you know? It's like Viola or what I was talking about with story theater, it's just, it's just once you allow yourself to be in the space with the other players, you're there, you know? It's breathtaking. I am just blown away by your work. It's so important and so beautiful. Now, are you teaching live again or are you doing virtual classes? Yeah, well, I've been doing some virtual classes, you know, mostly, um, mostly just keeping my laughter for a change comedy mentors, we call them, um, together in the loop and playing with some of my friends. Um, we, uh, you know, our last program was doing shows at Children's Hospital LA. You can imagine that was like, you know, in, in 2018, if you felt a little sniffle, you couldn't show it. So, you know, live, not yet. Like many other um, people I've talked to in theater and, and other things that function publicly, it's like we thought for two minutes there, we were out in the clear and now once again, who knows, type of thing. But, uh, you know, it's uh, it's needed more than ever. Absolutely, absolutely. We roll with the punches. And of course we know yes and and acceptance and we do what yeah. we can. And there is, you know, this global community that's sort of uh, aware of itself more and more of improvisers who all have this uh, kind of, you know, sense of the value of the work other than possibly being able to get on Saturday Night Live, which is... Right, 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 right. Yeah, I, I recently uh, attended an Asian improv festival and I've also been working with some children in India. And it's so wonderful to be able to be global like this and to work with all kinds of people that I never would have ordinarily even met. So Yeah, no, well, that's, you know, we have this conversation all the time, right? Well, it sucks to not being able to be in the room with somebody, but at least with Zoom, you can have students who, you know, if they're willing to get up and, you know, four in the morning <laughs> to be in the class, you know? Uh, so yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting time to be alive. It is, and you've contributed so much to life on this planet, Ed Greenberg. Oh, well, you, are, you. you are a treasure and a delight, and I am so blessed to know you. I really feel, honored that you've taken this time to be with me today. Well, thank you for reaching out, Marco. And it's, uh, it's uh, a joy to, you know, just, just talk about it and like that. It's great work. And I, and I do feel very fortunate to have 
sort of fallen into it in this lifetime. Oh, you certainly, certainly did. Um, you know, I just got a, a message from our friend Jeff McCloskey. Yes. And um, he just said he was talking about Alan Meyerson. And yes. Yes. And did we talk about Alan yet? Well, I just mentioned Alan as the founder of the committee, but yes, Alan yes. is uh, still a friend. Still a friend. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. And and here's a question Jeff posited. Um, what kind of lessons have you learned from other players? What kind of lessons have I learned from other players? Um, you know, I guess um, off the top of my head is um, some of the people that I've worked with, I truly have, I, in, the, in the broadest sense of the word, I, I love them, you know? I love them. We've shared so many laughs. We have been uh, on more than one occasion, kind of like telepathic with each other. You know, so th so there's that experience of like getting what the work is about. Um, and also, I would say uh, a hybrid of that is I think of because actually uh, something I posted maybe five years ago came up on Facebook today as this is a memory was a picture of Severin Darden. Yes. You know? who was a friend and also I remember the first time I saw Severin work and, and having had the great opportunity to, to work with and watch uh, people like Severin and, and Louis Arquette and Avery Schreiber and Mina Kolb. Oh yeah. And, and uh, you know, and, and so many other people that I've crossed paths with for so many years, just watching them, I remember the first time I saw Severin, I thought, oh my goodness, you know, this guy is doing something so unique and so interesting and so fundamentally funny. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> just, just wired funny, you know. Um, so, so just watch and learn and continue to uh, stay open. Absolutely, stay open. And I've always loved that principle of violas about, um, oh gosh, I'm gonna get approval and disapproval. Because I find personally that with my clients and with myself, you know, wanting to have that approval rather than just taking a risk and going out there. Yeah, that's a tough one. Uh, and, it, you know, the other thing, partially in answer to, to Jeff's thing, is just what you learn on stage. You know, Dell used to say, it's the safest place you're ever going to be. So all of these things that are sort of practiced for, for out in the real world, you know. Absolutely. So Jeff had one more uh, definition he asked for, and that is what, how would you describe an ensemble? How would I describe an ensemble? Um, well, somehow just off the top of my head, uh, 
the, the, the word listening is in that definition. You know, people who are uh, listening to each other, listening to each other and letting the, the, the cue from the, from the gestalt lead to the next move. And I think you refer to something we often call mind meld. When you've been working with the same people for so long that you almost can, I don't want to say anticipate because improv is on the spot in the present moment, but there's some great connection you have with each other. And yeah, and it, 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 I actually just, uh, I guess as a uh, vocation or a hobby, I love uh, I love studying the the science about it. One of the things that's so fascinating is when we were dabbling around with you know Dell and long form and how we all communicate and whatnot and what's going on underneath. And it's like now there's actual science that supports some of those you know. Uh, wacky theories we thought at the time, but it's like, it's all prescient in terms of what we know and what we're learning today. Great, yes, it certainly is. So I wanna ask you before we turn off, I see a picture behind you. It looks like it's black and white oh, yeah. over the shoulder. I wonder what that picture is. Um, that's uh, a, a friend of my wife, and I, who is passed on, um, Eve Arnold, her name is. Uh, it's a picture of Marilyn Monroe sitting in a chair and laughing. Oh, how beautiful. And Eve uh, took a, a whole lot of pictures of Marilyn Monroe. And she gifted us with one of, one of the prints. And it's, it's Marilyn Monroe. And it's, it's beautiful. What an inspiration. Listen, I want to thank you so much for today. This has been charming and I can't wait to see you again. Who knows where and when um, I'm down here in Florida, you're in California. But who knows where our travels will bring us, huh? Who knows? Who knows? Um, well, and I've, I've learned so much today, Ed. Thank you so much. I've personally learned so much. That's one of the reasons I started this podcast, because I'm kind of alone near the Everglades in Naples, Florida, and I don't have the opportunity to talk and play with other improvisers. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a, it's a great service that you're doing to gather people and share these, these thoughts. So um, sometimes I ask people to maybe for closing remarks, what would you say to somebody new in improv? I mean, they hear a lot of jargon, perhaps in the beginning. They don't necessarily want to be on Saturday Night Live or even perform. But what's the value of learning improv? The value of learning improv is the experience of, of playing with people and connecting and the concept of follow the follower comes to mind because what a great concept, you know, and, and, and listening and trusting and all the words that sometimes sound like cliches, but are like so 
baked into the cake that is improvisational theater. Well, thank you so much, Ed Greenberg. And I look forward to seeing you again. I appreciate your time today. Okay, Margo. Thank you.